0: Good morning. My name is Terry Smith, and I'm on staff with Canadian Baptist Ministries. My wife and I live in Toronto, but we spent nearly 20 years overseas with CBM in Paris, France. A few months ago, while I was beginning my sabbatical, we invited Reverend Darrell Johnson to lead a short devotion at CBM. We were all online, of course. Um, Daryl is the former pastor at First Baptist Church in Vancouver, and he spoke to us that day on the Lord's Prayer. His thoughts lit a spark in me to dig deeper into the study of this very well-known prayer in the New Testament. So during my sabbatical, I spent hours in God's Word studying that passage, memorizing it in various translations, taking notes and reading books about it. I was like a kid in a candy store. The only thing is I'd known about that shop for many years. I could even quote off by heart what I thought was in it but I had never really discovered just how amazing the goodies are in it. So I owe a great debt of gratitude to Daryl Johnson, but also to J.I. Packer, Tom Wright, F.F. Bruce, and others who mentored me in my understanding of the Lord's Prayer through their writing and teaching. I am delighted to bring you today and for three subsequent Sundays a series of messages entitled Missioning Through the Lord's Prayer. We will do our own deep dive into the Lord's Prayer but hopefully through a different lens. I have called it missioning through the Lord's Prayer. Even though you might not know the verb to mission or the participle missioning, but I assure you they genuinely do exist. Certainly we know about commissions and intermissions and submissions. But I think that when we read the Lord's Prayer through this new lens, we can be transformed and we can become agents of transformation in a broken world. So over the next few Sundays, I hope to show that when we live according to the Lord's Prayer, when we are brought into a fuller, richer, and deeper understanding of being God's missionary people, we will be transformed. Actually, I think it contains a whole lot about what it means to mission with God in a broken world. I wish we could be together in your sanctuary or your living room as you delve into the Lord's Prayer. Together we can see how it shapes our understanding of God's purpose here in your community, in my community, in the world around us. What we are called to be and to do. Transformed by the power of God's word and united in prayer as his people, we're going to discover the awesome richness that this storehouse holds. I invite you to have a Bible in hand, maybe a notebook and a pencil. You can of course use your tablet or your cell phone as we engage the text. Each message will have a few questions at the end that can help deepen your thinking as we are missioning through the Lord's Prayer together. We will be right back with today's first message. Father in heaven hallowed be your name your kingdom come your will be done on earth as it is in heaven give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors and lead us not into temptation but deliver us from the evil one for thine is the kingdom the power and the glory forever and ever amen this is the first of a four part series on the lord's prayer I suspect that this is probably the most oft-quoted passages in all of the Bible, and yet I believe it still holds treasures for us to enjoy. Let's begin by setting the stage. So Imagine that you were there, sitting on the hillside, when Jesus delivered what we call today the Sermon on the Mount. You might have been a curious bystander, who had heard about this man from Nazareth, who had performed extraordinary miracles, and you wanted to see him in person. The way we do nowadays when we want to see a celebrity, when we hear that someone famous is in town. Or perhaps you were one of the Pharisees, upset with what he had been teaching and trying to gather some evidence of what you thought was blasphemy. You couldn't quite put your finger on it, and yet you knew that there was something that was obviously wrong with what he was saying about the kingdom of God. It did not jive with your understanding. Or... Whether you were a fringe follower or perhaps even one of the 12 disciples, you knew that you were in the presence of a holy man, an exceptional teacher who was claiming to reorder the world. You were totally taken by his allure. As you sat there on the hillside, this rabbi or teacher was putting forward ideas that felt revolutionary. He talked about making peace at a time of war in your land. He spoke about being the light of the world in the midst of darkness. Or how about this one? He said, you've heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, turn the other cheek. This teaching is way too radical. This guy is rocking the boat. People are not going to be happy with what he said. Gosh, he might just start a revolution. And then he adds this. You've heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy." But I say, love your enemy and pray for those who persecute you so that you will be like your Father in heaven. Deep down, you know that you want to be that kind of person. But how? He's talking about personal devotion. Piety, we might call it. Being holy. In those days, back in first century Palestine, your ears perk up because everybody at that time was supposed to be religious, was supposed to be holy. You had been steeped in it your entire life. You knew the rules, the do's and don'ts of personal devotion, not just the easy ones like respect the Sabbath or follow the Ten Commandments. Your whole life, your entire society had been centered around honoring Yahweh and the institutions of your Jewish tradition. Someone there on the hillside, according to the account of Luke, shouts out to him, Master, teach us to pray. And before his words actually begin to sink in, you reflect quickly back on the way that people prayed in your hometown. According to Jewish tradition at the time, people prayed three times a day, always standing straight, erect, saying very specific prayers in Aramaic, which is very much like Hebrew. Prayers that were written down in the book of the law, which we call the Old Testament. But for you, it was the Torah, the law. Every prayer was prescribed to you. No extemporaneous praying, no ad-libbing. And prayers sounded the same. You memorized them ever since you were a child. You knew them off by heart. It sounded like this. Shema Yisrael Adonai Elohenu, Adonai Ehad Hear, O Israel. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. That prayer comes from the book of Deuteronomy. And it goes on to say you must love the Lord your God with your whole mind, your whole being, and all of your strength. How could somebody be so preposterous as to ask Yeshua, Jesus, to teach us to pray when we already know how to pray? We did it three times a day. And so this is the setting. Someone boldly asked Jesus, teach us to pray. And it offers us a backdrop as to what was happening when the Lord gave His disciples, and the Church even now, 2,000 years later, this most important prayer. And what follows is the Lord's Prayer. In the Greek New Testament, there are only 57 words in the Lord's Prayer. Only 57 words. For comparison's sake, by the way, I've probably already said over 800 words in just this message. I suspect that when the disciples asked Jesus, teach us to pray, they weren't asking Jesus something akin to, Lord, help us overthrow the religious traditions of the day, but rather they were asking something far more simple. Lord, teach us a new way to relate to God. Teach us to relate to God like you do it. How can we access God the Father like you? And my goal through this series this month is to help you learn a new way to relate to God. So that the Lord's Prayer isn't just something we say, but rather it is something that we live. And if we are living it, then we will also learn to engage in God's mission through it. Hence, missioning through the Lord's Prayer. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread. And forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. And the last part, for thine is the kingdom, the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Words that were likely added decades, maybe even a couple centuries later, that weren't part of the earliest transcripts. Today I want to share two main points. And they serve to set the stage for what we will be exploring over the next three weeks. To begin with, point number one. How do we approach or relate to God? Matthew chapter 6 begins with Jesus showing three different examples of how people relate to or access God. In today's parlance, maybe how people express their spirituality. Two of them are negative and one is positive. By the way, again, I hope that everyone has a Bible open during this message, either on your cell phone or a real physical paper Bible. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 6. As I said, Jesus uses three examples, or opposing ways to show our devotion through prayer and charity. The first example is in verses 1 to 6. He describes, well, the hypocrite's way of doing it. Let's call it overtly demonstrative. They were committed to practicing righteousness. But he warns that such righteousness or right living, it can be too showy, it's too loud, too self-promoting. And it's not the way of God. Don't be like the Jewish leaders or hypocrites, he said, who do the right things but for the wrong reasons, just to be seen by others. Real-life spirituality is discreet, quiet, barely visible, and not self-promoting. Do it in secret, and your Father who is in heaven will reward you. Verses 7 and 8, he outlines a second way. He describes it as the pagan way of approaching God. It is grossly transactional. He's likely referring to the Greeks or people of other religions who came to Jerusalem during the religious festivals. When they pray, they add lots and lots of words, he says. He literally says they babble on and on. The word connotes a sense of a battering ram that pounds away at something until it finally breaks. They think that if they use lots of words, then God will hear them. It's like a child who says, Mummy, 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 mummy. We all know it. Jesus says the pagans act like they're transacting with God. If we do this, he'll do that for us. And words, words, words. They just push and push and push, thinking if they do the right thing, God will do his part. But the hypocrites have totally missed the point. Their practice negates the principle of love, of grace, and of mercy. No matter what we do, all of our deeds, our words are, well, in the words of the Apostle Paul, like filthy rags compared to God's justice. So the third way is this new or radical model, which we can call Jesus' way. It isn't righteousness for public consumption, like the Jewish way. It's not piety by negotiation, like the pagan way. Jesus says in part two of verse eight, your father knows what you need before you ask him. This then is how you should pray. Our father in heaven. His first line is so key. He knows what you need before you ask. But say this to him anyway. Jesus' way of approaching or relating to God is what I call relational. It's not demonstrative. It's not transactional. It's actually humbly relational. There are two or three key key ideas here. The first is that God is immensely approachable. We get to talk to him face to face. Imagine how radical this is, especially at that time. This is a concept that can only be understood by sheer unimaginable love. The king of the cosmos, the creator, the ruler of the entire world, the sustainer of every atom, every molecule, allows us to approach him in prayer conversation. By the way, the word prayer in this text literally means to engage in conversation. It's not about the posture or having to stand up or kneel down with your hands at your side or in the air. It's not about the frequency or the volume or the persistence. God invites us to talk to him, to be in communion with him. He gives God a title. I guess we could say, God is our father. One author I read said it this way. What king would ever allow someone to bother them in their sleep at 3 a.m. in the morning to ask for a a glass of water? Well, the kind of father who is a king. Jesus gives God, Yahweh, Adonai, Elohim, Jehovah, call him whatever name comes to your mind. He gives him this wonderful title of father, a term of love and affection, of access and comfort. He calls him our father, not just my father, because Jesus was the son of God, but our father. And this is at the core of the way Jesus invites us to relate to God. We can talk to him freely because we have a family relation with him. He is our Father. We are His adopted children, according to Ephesians 1.15. He predestined us through adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ. We are His eternal children because He chose to adopt us. Perhaps you or someone in your family was adopted. There's something incredibly special about adoption. It's not just a biological event, but rather it's a matter of free choice. You decide who will be your eternal child, your son or your daughter. And Jesus says that in this Christian way of approaching God, he is in a relationship with us, and we can call him, well, our Father. This Father in heaven to whom we have access. In a real sense, he says, in heaven. Our Father in heaven. As we traditionally pray, our Father who art in heaven. We tend to make heaven a little bit of our own creation high in the sky, a physical place far away with pearly gates and streets of gold and in the clouds with angels playing shiny harps or whatever. This is our picture of heaven. I want to invite you to think slightly differently about heaven for a moment. Not so much the physical space, but rather I want you to think of it, oh gosh, I guess I could say as a dimension or as a realm. I know this sounds a little bit exotic, but try to picture a different dimension which we can't really comprehend or grasp, but it is entirely real. If heaven isn't just a place, but it is a dimension, it is both above us and below us. It is beside us. Heaven is all around us. This dimension is there. Did you know that during the time of Jesus, the term in heaven for Jewish people literally meant on the throne? Just before this section of the Sermon on Not, Jesus says, do not take oaths at all. Not by heaven, because it is the throne of God. Not by earth, because it is his footstool. Jesus is telling us that there is a throne, and our Father is seated on the throne. The prophet Isaiah wrote, This is what the Lord says, The heavens are my throne, and the earth is my footstool. Where then is the house you will build for me? Where is the place where I will rest? The whole of the Easter message is that God in Christ has definitively vanquished Or beaten the power of Satan over the finality of this earth, the footstool, which is death through the tomb, the empty cross and the tomb. If you wish, we could say that heaven is God's control room. It is his command post. It is where God is exercising his divine rule over his kingdom. So when the disciples heard Jesus say, when you pray, say this, our father in heaven They weren't just thinking, our Father far away and out of reach, but rather they were thinking, our Father seated on the throne of your kingdom. Give us access to you in the control room. And this sets the stage for the prayer we call the Lord's Prayer. It's humbly relational conversation with our Father who is in the control room. My second point is, what is the heart of the Lord's Prayer? What is at its very core? What is the big idea of the Lord's Prayer? Certainly, Jesus spoke more about the coming kingdom than any other topic. And what does a kingdom require? Well, a king, a ruler. And where does a king rule from? As I said, from a throne. So the people who were hearing Jesus say this, our father who is seated on a throne, are thinking Abba in the control room. Daddy in the command post. Heaven is the control room of earth, according to N.T. Wright. And God's sovereign rule is present here today. As we learn to walk with Jesus and live as God's people in the world, God's kingdom plan continues to unfold. Heaven is being revealed through God's people. This is our mission. This is what Jesus applies implies in John chapter 18, verse 36, where he says, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jewish leaders. But now my kingdom is from another realm. The heart of the Lord's Prayer. Is the, the heart of the Sermon of the Mount is actually the Lord's Prayer. So what is the heart of the Lord's Prayer? Well, I need to kind of illustrate this for you. When we construct an argument or share a series of ideas, we do it, well, exactly like I've done in this sermon. We go in order. Point number one, point number two, point number three, maybe point number four, and then a conclusion. I once heard a preacher say, I have 17 points I would like to make to you today. At that moment, everybody unplugged their brain because there's no way we could retain 17 points. Ever since the Enlightenment in the 18th century, Western thought, proceeds in a sequence of order, point one, two, and three. But according to the rule and the practice at the time of Jesus, and actually throughout most of the Old Testament times as well, thoughts were explained differently. Not one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, but rather one A, two A, three A, four, three B, two B, one B. You basically end up where you started. It's not linear, but maybe circular, or actually more like a triangle. There's a technical word for it, and it's called a chiasma. That word doesn't matter as much as the pattern that I'm trying to help you understand, because it unlocks the key to understanding the Lord's Prayer. Let me give you a couple examples of chiasmas. Genesis chapter 9. Whoever sheds the blood of of man, by man his blood shall be shed. You understand? The pyramid. Or John chapter 4. God is spirit. And the timer is coming, and now is here, when the true worshippers we'll worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father seeks people to be his worshipers in spirit and in truth. You understand this structure. I could go a lot deeper into this, but it helps point us in the direction of a pattern to see what the heart of the Lord's Prayer is. Again, I owe a debt of gratitude to Daryl Johnson for pointing this out to me. In the Lord's Prayer, the heart, which is the heart of the Sermon on the Mount. The heart of the Lord's Prayer is follows this pattern. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our debts or our trespasses and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. The heart of the Lord's Prayer is about heaven and earth coming together. It is our accessing God who is our Father. We are enacting God's eternal plan of bringing together heaven and earth. The book of Revelation tells us that God's eternal plan, which will be the culmination of all of history, will be a new heaven and a new earth. When we access God in this relationship We have with the man on the throne who is our Father. We are bringing about the convergence of heaven and earth. It is the heart of the Lord's Prayer, the heart of God's will, and the heart of our faith. As an Easter people who stand in the shadow of the empty cross, we know that God in Christ has bridged heaven and earth. He conquered death and he gives us access to God. The Lord's Prayer is God's gift of love. It is the key ring, if you want, that gives us access to our Father in the control room. So let's summarize our thoughts today. Jesus' radical teaching on the Sermon on the Mount stood out against a pattern of religious practice of his day. The disciples asked him, Lord, teach us to pray. Or more literally, how can we relate to God? Jesus outlined three different ways, three examples of how people pray. One is overtly demonstrative to gain recognition. The second is grossly transactional to gain our wishes. And the third, Jesus' way, is humbly relational as we enter into the holy presence of our Father. This Father is in heaven, which is the control room, and He has invited us to participate through this prayer in bringing about His divine purpose. That is why we are missioning through the Lord's Prayer. Let's apply this lesson Throughout the week. If you're struggling in your own prayer life this week, as many of us do, just imagine all week long that you are sitting on your Father's lap in the control room, that He has His eyes on all of the switches, His hands are on all of the levers. He is in control. Can you trust Him to do His perfect will? Secondly, let's just start by saying these old words over and over again on earth as it is in heaven on earth as it is in heaven, on earth as it is in heaven. Make it like your mantra this week. And I think that you will find yourselves asking God to take full control over everything that you touch in life. And I have a missioning assignment. I'd like you to reflect on the idea that you have access to a father in a control room. He is paying attention to the details. Can you trust him? Next week, we're going to look a little bit more closely at what God is doing in the control room, I invite you to bow your heads in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have given us access to you as you are in the control room, as you are controlling and directing and guiding all of our lives. Help us to trust you more. Thank you for the gift that you have given us in the Lord's Prayer today. In Jesus' name, amen. I'd like to leave you with three questions to discuss. First of all, we began this message by asking what it must have been like sitting on the hillside when Jesus delivered the Sermon on the Mount. Does the request put forward by one of the disciples, Lord, teach us to pray? Does it come as a surprise to you? What type of request would you have expected to hear? And what would you have asked if you were there on the hillside? Secondly, describe how you picture or understand heaven. What, is, what has shaped your understanding? How did you feel when I described heaven not so much as a place out there, but rather as a dimension, above you, below you, around you, beside you? How does this understanding of heaven impact you? Thirdly, if the heart of the Lord's Prayer is this phrase, on earth as it is in heaven, what difference does this have and make in the way we as a church engage in God's work in our homes, at work, at school, in our community. Our missioning assignment this week is this. Reflect on the idea that you have access to your Father in the control room. He is paying attention to all of the details. Can you trust Him? And then pray for one another, that our trust would grow, and that the obstacles to trust could be removed, that they would be named and then removed. Thank you, and we'll see you next week.
1: sufferings this passing time under The name above all other names The name above all other names
0: And for the benediction Romans 8, 38 and 39. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor power, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God. In Christ Jesus, our Lord. Amen.